We're actually not going to get very far in Acts, but we are going to continue our series in Acts tonight. We're in Acts chapter 18. You can turn there now. Tonight's sermon's called Vows, Crowns, Ups and Downs. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's a fun one. How long did it take you? <laughs> just a few minutes. You know what I mean? Just like the <laughs> Vows, crowns, ups and downs. We're going to do it. I'll say it five times. No, you do it. Nice. So, Acts chapter 18. And we're in verse 18. Paul spent about a year and a half in Corinth, and he's just now leaving Corinth. And the protection of God was on him the whole time he was there. God showed up and said, you're not going to get hurt. No one's going to try and stone you this time. Everything's going to be good for you while you're here. So he stayed there for about a year and a half, teaching them preaching to them, building this, what would become a pretty strong church in Corinth. And after a year and a half, he leaves. So that's where we find ourselves in verse 18. It says, so Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. So these are two people that he met that are traveling with him. And so they travel with him for Syria. And it says, he had his hair cut off in Centria, for he had taken a vow. Sort of a, an odd little piece of information that Luke throws in there. And so because it's in there, I, I wanted to talk about vows, which is the first part of tonight's sermon. A vow to the Lord. We've talked a little bit about how important it is and how it's a good thing, but I, I kind of wanted to dive into it and actually look at it scripturally, like what does a vow to the Lord look like? And so we're going to come back to Acts, but let's turn to Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy chapter 23. This goes all the way back to the beginning. This chapter, I have a little title in my Bible. It says Miscellaneous Laws. We always hear about the Ten Commandments. There's like actually over 600. Yeah. And so we're looking at this not because we read these laws and we're like, oh, we have to follow this exactly how it is. We know that the law, although it was good, it was not perfect because we're not perfect. We can't keep every single one of these laws perfectly. The only one who could was, of course, Jesus. But what we do when we now look at the Old Testament, when we now look at the law, is we look for the spirit of the law. And we, we don't just throw out the Old Testament, but we read the Old Testament and say, okay, well, how does this apply? What's the spirit of, of this law? And how can we obey God by obeying that spirit. So Deuteronomy 23, starting in verse 21, it says, when you make a vow to the Lord, so that's our topic, right? Vows. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. So this sounds like it's a monetary vow, but it's not necessarily just that, because any sort of vow that we make, it's always going to look like us, us paying it, because you think about the promises people make to God even today. Like, God, he's like, please help me through this final. Help me pass this class. And if, if you help me, then I promise to, like, not eat cookie dough for what, you know, whatever. People make these weird promises to God and they throw them out there. They don't really take them seriously, sadly. But even that payment needs to not be slack. Not like, oh, yeah, I know I said I was going to do that next year, God, but 
I, I'm, I'm, I'll put it off till the, till the next year. And we just put off those promises sometimes. So even if it's not a monetary vow, if it is a monetary vow, then, then great. You told God you were going to give something, pay it. And don't delay to pay it. But if it is something like God, like, man, I just really want to do this thing. I promise you that I'm going to do this for you, or I'm going to do this for your church, or I'm going to do this for somebody else. If you make that promise to God, don't delay to fulfill that promise. Don't delay to pay it. Continuing in 21, For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. Meaning, if you delay to pay it, or if you don't pay it, it's going to be a sin. Continuing in verse 22, But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. So, what he's saying is, if you make a promise to God, fulfill it. If you don't fulfill it, you're sinning. Don't make the promise if you can't fulfill it. He's not saying, don't make the vow, never vow to God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you make a vow, make sure to fulfill it. Otherwise, you're sinning. Verse 23, that which has gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So, God didn't ask you to do this thing. You just promised that you were going to do this thing, and now you have to do that thing because you promised it. And God's going to require it of you. He's going, to, he's going to hold you accountable to your promise. Even if it's something that he didn't even tell you that you had to do, if you say, God, I promise you I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do this for this person, or I'm going to do this for the church, or this ministry, or whatever. If you make a promise to God, you are accountable for that promise. And if you don't do it, you're sinning. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to be jumping around a little bit tonight. So bear with me. If you listen better without jumping around, then feel free to sit back, relax, and listen. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 and 5. says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. Sounds very familiar. It sounds a lot like what we just read, right? But Solomon here adds a little something. He says, for he has no pleasure, speaking of God, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay it. Again, he's not saying don't make the promise, but he's saying if you make the promise, make sure to pay it, or else you're being foolish, you're being wicked. It's not a, a good thing. So that's just two of the places that are saying the same thing. We have a lot more throughout the Old Testament with this same sort of thing. If you make a promise, make sure to keep it, or don't make the promise. So when Jesus came, we know that he fulfilled the law and the prophets, but what people sort of get mixed up is they think he fulfilled the law. He throw it out. We're done with it. And if you look at how he fulfilled it, it he actually elevates it mo most of the time. So we can go to Matthew chapter five. Now we see this, we see Jesus do this multiple times where he says, you've heard it said, or you've, you've read this in the old Testament, but I say to you, and he, he takes it to the next level. So his fulfillment of it. And the reason he's doing that is because again, He's speaking of the spirit of the law. Whereas a lot of the Jews got really, you know, tied up in like, you have to do this and you have to do this and you have to do this. But Jesus is saying, doing all that stuff isn't going to save you. The law is supposed to show you what kind of person God wants you to be. So that's why Jesus says the type of person God wants you to be, a godly person will do this. And so the law sort of gets elevated because he's talking about the spirit of the law which is the spirit that God wants in his people. In Matthew 5, verse 33, 
Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, right? Don't bear false witness as part of the Ten Commandments. Don't lie, right? Don't swear falsely, but shall perform the oaths to the Lord. That's what we just read. We read two of the things that said exactly that. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So, is Jesus saying, don't make a promise? Don't make promises. Is that what Jesus is saying here? Sort of sounds like it at first glance, but no. Again, he's not saying don't make the vow. He's not saying don't make the promise. But what he's saying is be a reliable person. That's the spirit of the law. That's why the law exists, because God wants his people to be reliable. He wants you to be a man or a woman of your word. He wants you uh, not to, you know, all of us, I know I did as a kid, I used to say it all the time, like, hey, you know, my friend or my brother or whatever say, like, oh, you said you were going to do this. Well, I didn't promise I was going to do it. <laughs> right? And that, that's how people, kids do that, but people do that too. Like, well, I, I didn't make a promise, so it's not that big of a deal if I don't fulfill my word. A godly person, if you say you're going to do something, you need to follow through. You need to do it. You need to be a person of your word. And you need to take it seriously when you say, yeah, I'll do that. Don't just say it to get out of a conversation or say it to get out of something else or into something, whatever. Whatever you say, you need to consider what you're saying and take it seriously. Don't say you're going to do something if you're not going to do it. And don't say you're going to do something if you're not going to be able to do it. Like if it's like, I don't really know if I can do this, but I'm going to promise to do it. That's a bad situation to get yourself into. And as I'm saying this, I'm realizing that we fail and we need to have grace with one another because I did this to Aaron very short ago. I said, hey, let's get together and read, or he asked me, you want to get together and read Psalms? I'm like, yeah, let's, let's do that. On this day, at this time, we'll do it. And then uh, I talked to Annie and she's like, you told me that we were going to do this. I said, crap. So I had to call Aaron and say, dude, I'm sorry. I double booked. I told Annie I was going to do this thing on that day at that time. Forgive me. So, as we're talking about being a person of your word, make sure to be introspective about it and not try and put the law on other people. Oh, you're not being godly. You and start judging everybody. We need to have grace with one another. We need to be forgiving to one another. And hopefully, uh, Aaron will forgive me and we will get together and read Psalms very soon. So, I'm sorry. I said sorry already, but this is a public thing now. So, there you go. Um, that... That's how it happens. We are not perfect. Again, we cannot be perfect. So even when there are these rules or, or, or laws or whatever, we're going to fail. And, and we can't beat ourselves up. Oh, I'm such a bad person. But we have to say, God, I'm sorry. Aaron, I'm sorry. Let's mend that relationship and, and try and do better next time. Try your hardest to fulfill your word. Be a person of your word. Let's go to James 4 now. A lot of people, there's like pastors and commentators 
And they're, they're sort of bash Paul for like, oh, he took this vow, right? He shaved his head. He, he, took, he shouldn't have taken a vow. He's in the New Covenant. He's doing this Old Testament thing. Like, he shouldn't have done that. It's like, it's, it's not a bad thing to make a promise. It's not a bad thing to, to make the vow. And Jesus didn't say, don't vow, don't promise. He just says, be, if you say yes, that means yes. You, you just promised. For a Christian, that should be as good as a promise. If I say yes. If I say no, as a Christian, that should be as good as a promise. I promise you that I will not do that thing. So here we're going to see how to deal with those things where you're like, I'm, I'm going to try my hardest. I'm going to try and, and do that, right? James 4, verses, uh, we'll start in 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Right? Jesus just said the same thing. Anything more than your yes being yes and your no being no, anything more than that is from the evil one. The Bible says that the devil is a liar and the father of all lies. So when you say, yeah, I'm totally going to do that thing, and you don't even intend to do it, that's not just a sin, it's demonic. Like, that is what the devil does. That's what demons do. So it's it's a serious thing for you to not be a, a person of your word, to to not be a reliable person is, is actually a demonic thing and a demonic action. And this kind of attitude that James lays out, don't boast like, we're going to do this thing. Uh, we see Paul do exactly that. If we go back to Acts now, back to Acts 18, verse 19, it says, And he came to Ephesus and left them there. This is uh, Priscilla and Aquila. He leaves them in Ephesus. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. We heard him last week when he was in Corinth. He, they, they were blaspheming. They were speaking against him and the Bible and, the, and, and God. And he shakes the dust and says, from now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. And some people will say, well, from, from then on, he was only talking to Gentiles. No, he was talking to the Corinthians. They rejected Christ. And so he says, I shake the dust from you. I'm going to the Gentiles. He still continues. This is what we've seen Paul do throughout his ministry. He continues to do it. He goes to a city. He goes to the synagogue and he reasons with the Jews. As he says over and over and over again in Romans, the word of God goes to the Jew first, then also to the Gentile. That's how it's uh, always been done. And that's how Paul runs his ministry. Verse 20, when they asked him, to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. There it is. He, he lives this lifestyle, this godly lifestyle. of like he's not going to promise that he's going to come back to Ephesus. He says, my plan is to come back to Ephesus if God wills it, because he doesn't know if he's going to survive the boat trip back to Jerusalem. He doesn't know if he's going to survive the long journey back through the countries where everybody was trying to stone and kill him. A lot can happen between Jerusalem and 
Ephesus and vice versa. He, he's not going to say, I promise you I'm going to come back because he doesn't know what tomorrow brings. He doesn't know if he's going to be able to make it back. He's going to do his best and he's going to make plans. He's going to pray prayerfully, make those plans. But he's ultimately going to say, if God wills, then I'll make it back. And uh, spoiler alert, he does make it back. Um, but Paul is a man of his word. He's a, he's a godly man because he doesn't just make these promises, make these boasts, but he says, God willing, this is my plan, and that's what I'm going to try and do. Now, if we back up a little bit and talk about the type of vow that he makes here, I just wanted to, to focus in a little bit that he cut off his hair because he had taken a vow. This is more than likely the vow of a Nazarite, which we won't completely unpack that tonight. If you want to read about it, it's in Numbers chapter 6. But the basic three rules of the vow of the Nazarite is don't drink any alcohol. Like, don't eat, you don't even eat anything that alcohol is, is made of. So, in, in that time, it says don't drink any wine or strong drink. The point is, don't drink any alcohol. This is the vow of the, the Nazarite. Don't even eat the grape. Don't eat the, the, the peel of the grape. Don't touch a grape. Like, this is your vow. Sometimes we'll make these, um, like, Sometimes we'll, like, maybe take a fast or we'll promise God, like, all right, I'm not going to have beer for so long. But we're going to drink stuff that tastes like beer. Like, oh, drink this non-alcoholic beer because I like the taste of beer. It's like, well, if you're going to make the promise, just do the promise. Just make the, do the fast. Don't try and sneak around your fast by doing these other little things that the vow of the Nazarite is, don't even come close to the strong drink. Don't even come close to the grape. Yeah, don't eat any bread. No, uh, I'm not gonna take it that far. Uh, again, that's getting a little bit uh, down to the letter of the law. But the point is to not drink any alcohol is number one. Don't cut your hair or beard, so no razor to touch your your head. Uh, and number three, don't come close to any dead body. That's the three main things of the vow of the Nazarite. You might set think that it sounds familiar because that's what Samson was. This vow was for people to take for a time, but God actually shows up to Samson's mom and says, all right, Samson's going to be set apart as a Nazarite for his entire life. He needs to live the vow, live the life of a Nazarite, not just the vow for a short time, but for his whole life. Samson didn't do great at it. If you want to hear more, I, I have done a sermon on that. It's recorded. I can give it to you if you're interested, but... We're not going to unpack that either tonight. But the interesting thing is that this vow, if even if somebody like suddenly died next to you, right, you didn't know they were going to die, but that somebody dies and you're near them, you have sinned because you're not keeping your vow. And so you would have to, you haven't been sh cutting your hair, you'd have to cut your hair and start all over. So whatever time frame that you set, I'm going to do this vow of the Nazarite for this time, you'd have to start all over because you broke your vow. Um, and what the what Numbers says there is that the your consecrated head has been um, defiled. And what the reason I'm focusing on this is because that it's such an interesting thing that Paul did this when he did it. And we've seen Paul throughout his ministry before do things so that the Jews will see them as a certain way. Like, look, I'm, we're not rejecting you. We, we 
were trying to tell you that Jesus is the Christ and he fulfilled all these things. So he would do these things to make them see him as a Jew who loves God and believes in the Christ. And that's what he would do. So when it says that he had taken a vow, what would happen at the end of a Nazarite vow is you would shave your head and you were clean. You, were, you could now drink again and, and the vow was over. So it sounds like when he is leaving Corinth, he's deciding, all right, I'm going to stop or, or my time is fulfilled. My vow is over. So the, he's probably walking around Corinth for a year and a half with long sh- dreads and a huge beard, living the life, uh, this vow of, of a Nazarite. Um, and that word consecration, um, we don't hear it a lot and it's not really taught about a lot, but in the Hebrew, it means a diadem or, which is like a crown of a king. That's what the word literally means. It also has a secondary meaning of, of to being, being set apart like a priest. But it's interesting that it, that it talks about the consecration of your head. So like that long hair that you weren't cutting at all, your long beard, it was like wearing a crown. It was like saying, okay, I am separating myself. I am choosing to live a a more uh, holy and set apart life to honor God. I'm I'm choosing to do this Nazarite thing uh, in order to honor God and to be set apart, to be separated. And the reason I'm talking about this is because we are holy. We are consecrated. When we become Christians, when we have faith in Jesus, we step into being consecrated. We are God's special people. You don't have to go there. I'm going to quickly flip over to 1 Peter 2, just for a couple of verses. If you guys remember when we went through 1 Peter, this will sound familiar. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. It says, but you are a chosen generation. He's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to people who have faith in Jesus and all that he did. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So God has called you out of a dark place. He's called you out of your sin. We read, I think it was a couple of weeks back, that God commands all men everywhere, right? All people everywhere to repent. Everybody. That's God's calling. He is calling everybody to repent. And that calling is to come out of your filth, out of your darkness, out of your sin, and to be a royal priesthood. Revelation chapter 1 says that you are kings and priests. This applies to you ladies as well. So we're kings and we're queens and priests and priestesses. That is your calling, to come out of your sin, to come out of uh, your ungodliness and walk in godliness in Christ and be a king, be a queen, be a priest, be a priestess. That is your calling. Now, Ephesians 4 says to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Right? So, your calling is to be a king. Your calling is to be a queen, to be a priest, to be a priestess. So, act like it. That is what Peter is saying. And that is what Paul is saying in the letter to the Ephesians, is to walk worthy of that calling. God has called you out of darkness, out of filth, 
and into righteousness and into goodness. So walk worthy of that calling. The God who created everything wants a relationship with you and wants you to live a righteous life. So take that seriously and say and realize, okay, this is a high calling. I need to I need to please God with my life. I need to walk I need to act like a king. I need to act like a queen. I need to act like a priest or priestess. I need to take that seriously. We can go back to Acts now. He says that he's, he's going to try to come back to Ephesians. He says, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. And after he spent some time there, he departed. And that's where we're going to stop for tonight in Acts. Because he's now going to go on to that departing there is his third missionary journey. So we've just wrapped up. He's just ended his second missionary journey. And next week we're going to get into his third. Uh, quick note, if you look at the map, as I've uh, told you before, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, you'll notice that Antioch is north of Jerusalem. And some people get all caught up because it says he went up to greet the brethren, which is up to Jerusalem and then down to Antioch. The way they spoke wasn't north is up and south is down, but Jerusalem was uh, situated at, at a higher altitude. So it was going up to Jerusalem and down to Antioch, just as a little side note for you to not get caught up on that. Um, also, I find it super interesting how important it was to Paul to go back to Jerusalem for this feast day, right? He says, I must by all means make it back to Jerusalem for this feast. I cannot stay. I can't possibly stay. I have to make it back to Jerusalem, right? Yet Luke, being the author of this book, he, he's really good at, at, at collecting all the really important parts of this time in Paul's life. And nothing notable seems to happen in Jerusalem. It just says he went up to greet the brethren and then went down to Antioch. And I, I just like that really like uh, it struck me as I was studying this because he's like, it's a big deal. I got to get back to Jerusalem. And a lot of things that we find really important are really not memorable. I, I know Johnny had a boss once that told him like, you're never going to remember working real hard every day, but you're going to remember your lunch breaks and you're going to remember your vacation. <laughs> like that's the stuff that pops out in your mind. And sometimes we get real caught up and like, this is so important I, at work. I got to really make, and it is important. You need to be reliable. You need to be a hard worker. You need to do well at work. But we need to also stop and pause and realize like, what's important to God? Like, what is, what does he have me to do? Also, another reason I find this interesting is often missionaries, they can't wait to get back to the mission field. Because the sort of Christian bubble of America is more overwhelming to them than the mission field. Even if their mission field is the slums, the slums of India, the slums of Africa, the, the dirtiest, nastiest parts of the world, missionaries will come back and be overwhelmed by the sort of bubble that we live in. And they're like, I can't wait to get back to the slums because it's less overwhelming. And I find that with Paul. He 
goes up and greets them in Jerusalem. He spends some time in Antioch, and then he just goes right back to the mission field. And, and we see that often with missionaries. And he's, I don't know, he's like super jazzed to get back to, to Jerusalem. He's excited to do it. And then he just greets them. He goes back to Antioch, and then he, he leaves pretty quickly. But he does spend some time in Antioch, right? And that's normally where he goes to like recharge. That's his home church. It's where his his church family is. He, he spends some time there. We don't know how long that some time. It could have been up to a year, but it wasn't a long, long time. Uh, and during that time, he does plan and pray for his next missionary journey. But it can be overwhelming when you go overseas for the first time or you go on your first missionary trip or not even your first. This isn't Paul's first missionary trip. When you go into missions and then you come back, it's like, oh, it's overwhelming. I remember the first time that I went overseas by myself, or it was the first time I'd gone overseas. I had been to Mexico before for a missions trip, but I, I went to Thailand when I was 19. I just wanted to do some traveling, so I worked, saved up some money, and quit and went to Thailand for a couple weeks. And man, it changed my perspective so much to see other cultures, to see other people, to see how other people lived and and how other people were also similar to me, even though they lived really poor lives or, or whatever it was. And you, you have the ex- these experiences when you travel. And I remember when I came back, I, I had uh, what Johnny and I call reverse culture shock, where I came back and I was super excited. Like, I can't wait to come back and talk to my friends and talk to my, I had a girlfriend at the time, like share all this experience, right? And when I came back, people asked these sort of cliche questions. And typically it was two questions, like, what was your favorite part and what was your least favorite part? And that's all they asked. And they didn't ask anything else. And they weren't interested in, in the experiences I had and the people that I had met. Uh, and they didn't understand what I had seen or understand what I had been through and even understand how that trip changed me. It changed my perspective and it changed my personality and it changed me in a lot of ways. And people didn't get it. And it was super depressing, like super depressing. And I remember my girlfriend at the time kind of being like, are you okay? Like you are like really depressed. And I was just like, and I had to like, pull myself out of this funk, but I was so depressed because, and this is what missionaries deal with is they come here and people don't care. (laughs) Like it's sad to say, but people, they are just so caught up in their bubble and their everyday life. And this is us. This This is stuff that we deal with. Right. And missionaries come and we're like, so what's good? What's bad? Like, all right, I gotta get going. And there's not an actual caring of what these people have, have been through or seen or experienced. And it's super hard, right? And so Paul, I really do think, experienced this. He comes back to his, his you know, he, I got to get back to Jerusalem. And they're just in their world, right? And he gets back to Antioch. And it's not bad to be in a bubble. It's not bad to be in a Christian community. But we need to be careful when a missionary comes to, to care. Because they are our brothers in Christ. And they are growing the family of God in whatever country that they are working and we need to realize, like, okay, these are brothers and sisters, and we need to love them, we need to care for them, we need to care about them, and we need to be interested in, in the things that they are doing, and the people that they're meeting, and the, the experiences that they're having. 
So Paul sort of recharges in Antioch. He does spend some time there. He prays. He plans for his third missionary journey, and it doesn't say that, but we know Paul was a big planner, and he always prayed about where he was going. We see that from some of the other letters that he gets into. Um, and then he departs. He goes on to his third missionary journey. So I will leave you with a challenge for you this year. And this challenge comes from that little part that we read where Paul is really concerned about getting back to Jerusalem and then spends next to no time there. So because of that, I kind of want to challenge you to ask God this year. We're starting a new year. We are thinking about New Year's resolutions. So I just kind of want you to this year sort of have a challenge, if you will, for me to ask God what's important to him. Not get too caught up in our bubble or too caught up in our lives and too caught up in my agenda or my plan, but really stop and pause and ask God who, what, why, and where. Okay, so two who's. Who does God want you to be? Ask God, like, God, who do you want me to be? All right? Ask God who he wants you to minister to. So those two who's, two who's, who, who, who does God want you to be and who does he want you to minister to? Ask God what he wants you to do, not just getting caught up in what you think you want to do. Uh, I'm not saying don't make plans. I, I really want to drill that into you. Make plans, pray about those plans, but also say, God, what's your plan? What do you want me to do? Another, what is what he thinks of what you're doing now. Uh, and this can be on a daily basis. This can be if you are in the middle of a sin, <laughs> like, oh, I know God doesn't like this. You know, ask that what question. God, what do you think of my lifestyle? What do you think of my ministry? What do you think of what I'm doing now? So what do you want me to do? And, and what do you think of what I'm doing? And then the why and where is ask God why he has you where you are. Not in a questioning, like, God, why? Why am I here? But say, like, God, why do you have me in this position? Why do you have me in this job? Why do you have me at this church? Why do you have me in this ministry? Like, why am I here? And and really take that answer. And that'll also go into the what and who, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be like, okay, why am I here? Well, I want you to minister to this person, right? So it, it's going to kind of bleed together there. And finally, where... Ask God where he wants you to go. I don't necessarily mean geographically, although it could be that. Uh, God, what mission trip do you want me to go on, right? It could be that. But also, God, where do you want me to go professionally? Where do you want me to go financially? Where do you want me to go today? Where do you want me to go next week? Like, God, guide me in my life, in my plans, in my trajectory, like, really be in conversation with God this year. And that's my challenge for you to ask him these personal questions and be introspective and be honest with God about your feelings, about your fears, about everything that's going on and really ask for guidance through some of the situations you're going and not getting caught up in this place you want to be or this place you want to go. Yes, have goals, have plans, do those things prayerfully, but do them prayerfully. Like, (laughs) Invite God to be a part of those plans and a part of that journey that you're on. So with that, we can pray and uh, have some fellowship together. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you 
so much for guiding Paul on his missionary journeys and using him to do so much. God, I, I pray that you will use us in similar ways. Guide us to the people that you want us to minister to. Help us know uh, what you want us to do on a daily basis and, and even with our lives on, on a bigger scale or with our year. God, I pray that you will guide us of um, where you want us to go and, and why you have us where you have us. God, I pray that you will just minister to us and your Holy Spirit to, to comfort us and guide us and help us to be glorifying to you with our words. Um, God, I pray that you will guide us on what promises that you want us to make to you and how to fulfill those things and that you will help us to be reliable people of our word, um, that we can glorify you in our everyday lives. Even if it's just being somebody who like, man, that guy, that girl, like they're reliable. <laughs> and when they ask us why that we can glorify you and say, it's because, um, the Bible tells me to be God. So, I thank you for everything that you've given us. I thank you for this new year. I pray that you go with us as we plan and uh, guide us as we continue on our everyday journey. And I pray that you bless this evening and our fellowship together. In Jesus' name, amen.